Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist Podcast. And I'm coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And while the not famous part is is so ironic because they're all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve. But as I always say, my next door neighbor may not recognize their name, uh, but they are really brilliant and committed to the work. And I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work they're doing. And I believe in serendipity. And so I hope that some positive things come from sharing their stories with all of you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited uh, to have on my show, um, Dr. Mike Gieske. Uh, and Dr. Gieske is a primary care physician at St. Elizabeth Physicians in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. Uh, and Mike received his medical degree from the University of Louisville School of Medicine um, in Louisville, Kentucky. And he did his family medicine residency um, at St. Elizabeth Healthcare uh, in Edgewood, Kentucky. Uh, he is a champion for early lung cancer screening. And of course, we're going to talk about that today. Um, uh, he also has become a friend who is a big supporter of the White Ribbon Project. So I'm really honored to have Mike on my show. So Mike, welcome to the program. Pleasure. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, let, let's start by uh, having you uh, tell us about yourself. I know you're, I don't know if they, they, people still use the phrase local boy done good, but I know you're, you're, you're local to, uh, to where you work. And uh, so I'd love to have you tell us about, tell us about yourself. Tell us about the young Mike Gieske. Sure. Yeah. I uh, grew up right down the street from our flagship hospital, Northern Kentucky, <clears throat> St. Elizabeth Edgewood. And actually, I remember when they broke ground on that hospital, probably about 40 years or more ago. And that was one of my first healthcare jobs. I worked in the lab there. And I've seen this community hospital evolve and grow to what it's become today. And it's been really quite a magnificent story. We now have six hospital sites and two separate imaging centers. And we serve over 380,000 people in the Northern Kentucky area. We also serve Southeast Indiana and the greater Cincinnati area as well. And I actually did my residency there, as you mentioned, also always wanted to uh, become a doctor and go to residency there down the street. I mean, literally my house is probably five minutes or less from that hospital. And just to be a part of this lung cancer screening program that we built has really been probably the most amazing part of my career and my journey. And it's been incredibly rewarding. And of course, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and being just so people understand the sort of the geography of, and I've been to Cincinnati only a couple of times. And I know that, you know, it, where you are is just really literally over the river uh, from. Sure, yeah. You can drive across the high river within 15 minutes of here. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's a cool area. My, I told you, I think I told you my friend worked at Fidelity um, in, in, uh, Covington, Kentucky. So he tells me a lot about his experience there with, they have an extremely large campus about 15 years, 15 miles from here too. Sure. Yeah. And he talked about his becoming a bourbon aficionado, which I have known, I know nothing about, but you know, apparently that was a big thing, uh, for him. But, um, so tell us about, uh, you, you know, you said you always wanted to be a doctor. Like at what age did you think that you, you know, that you really wanted to go into medicine? I don't remember ever not wanting to be a doctor. I mean, I started my <laughs> early years of grade school. I 
had an interest in art and I would draw pictures of different organs and human anatomy and, and had a file and I would give talks to other grade schoolers. And it was always an interest of mine, always interested in science. I had the, the visible man, the visible woman, you know, the models when I was uh, a young chap. And, and I, I got to a point where I was in, you know, pre-med and I was thinking, well, gosh, if I, don't get into medical school. What am I going to do? And my only fallback <laughs> was to become an artist. And that didn't seem like a great option. I, I love art, but I, I knew I'd probably be able to put bread on the table a little bit more effectively becoming a physician. Yeah. That's Luckily, amazing. Cards played out for me. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's really something that you, you knew at such a young age. And, and what did your parents think of that? Cause your parents weren't physicians, right? No, not at all. I was the first doctor in my family. I have one sister that's a nurse, but they're always very good with me. Just said, you know, you need to do this for yourself, but this is what you want to do. And if that's what you want to pursue, then, you know, it has to come from within, you know, we, we're not going to push you or encourage you, on, you know, unless it really comes from within your heart. So it's, I had great support from them. And what about your, your, your friends, you know, uh, you know, growing up, do you, do a lot of them still live around the area? Do you have them, any of them as patients? Like, uh, you know, since you're still so local. Oh, sure. Yeah. I have lots of friends and family as patients still, you know, Northern Kentucky is a pretty close knit community. Not too many yeah. people ever leave here. <laughs> and if, if they do, they usually come back. That's awesome. Now that must be really special for you. And I know I've talked to other, other people on my show who have, you know, trained at other places like Dr. Spiegel in, in Nashville, you know, he trained in Boston and Mm-hmm. He was so thrilled to go, you know, to go back to Nashville where he's from uh, and working at Sarah Cannon. And I think there's something really special about, about, you know, working where you're from I and mean, you're, you're close to your roots. And, and I think that's really cool that the, and the community is really lucky to have people like you that, that stay in the community to serve the community. It is. It's been a, a blessing. I have worked in three different sites with the same group all along, but you know, I started in a small town called Florence, and then I moved closer to where I actually grew up in Edgewood, and we opened up a site there. And then I moved most recently to Fort Mitchell because we needed to grow into a bigger site. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, each move I made was maybe five to 10 miles at the most down the road, which you know, doesn't seem like a lot. But in, in this community, sometimes people are are afraid to cross the Licking River, which is separates Kenton County and Camel County, or they're definitely afraid to cross the Ohio River oftentimes from Northern Kentucky into Ohio. And you know, people look at geography sometimes as a, a pretty large barrier, but we, we have a, a pretty close-knit community and we, 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 uh, you know, we, we stay close. Uh, I, again, I take care of a lot of friends, a lot of neighbors, a lot of family. I, uh, I try to make it very clear, though, when I'm off, I'm off. <laughs> I, yeah. I'll talk about anything but medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does, hey, Doc, can you take a look at this? You know, yeah. at the family cookout. <laughs> and, and most people are respectful of that. Yeah. Yeah. Do they talk in, in, in Kentucky? Do they is, is it is a lot of talk about county? Because I know in, in, in where I live in the Boston area, it's it's you know, you're from this town or from that town. But my son went to a school in Maryland and everyone's like, oh, Montgomery County or PG County. Is there a talk no, about not so much. I mean, there's, you know, of course, a number of counties that we service, but it's not really, ref- we, we kind of consider it Northern Kentucky or greater Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. But you do have, you do have family in greater Boston. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. My wife's sister lives up there. I have a brother that lives up there. Yeah. We, we've traveled up to Boston quite a bit. We've been all over the Northeast. So yeah. can I ask you if they're Patriots fans? 
They are. <laughs> oh, sweet. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I had to throw that in. Sorry. Um, I wanted to ask you, and I, I often hear this from people that are on my show that talk about mentors. And I'm just curious to know if you had, um, you know, mentors uh, along the way in your training or early in your career that, that stand out to you as that had made an impact on you. Quite a number of them, but, you know, for example, depends on what you're talking about. I mean, one of my greatest mentors was in art. I had a fellow that really inspired me to paint large canvases and he taught me how to build my own canvases and, and, and how to use, of course, mix different colors. And he was very inspirational fellow named Daryl brothers. And in, in medicine, really my, my greatest mentor presently and has been for several years is Dr. Doug Flora. He's our executive oncology director. And he really gave me quite a few pushes and nudges about five years ago. He saw my interest and my passion for lung cancer screening and at the time, I was very reluctant to get into the public speaking realm, and, and I held myself back intentionally, kind of considered that that wasn't one of my God-given gifts, and, and I was going to continue doing things that I felt I had talents in. And he just said, well, if you don't want to, it's okay, but I had this talk out at the uh, Association uh, Comprehensive what is it? The Association Community Cancer Center was out in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. And that was back in 2018. I agreed to go out there and give a talk about lung cancer screening on our program. And, and I started from that point on doing more and more talks and presentations and, and networking more with people across the country and in different organizations. And it's just become a, a true passion of mine now, networking and working with people and, and getting up in front of groups and talking and it's uh, it's still not something that comes entirely naturally to me, but I've I've worked at it a lot and have come to enjoy it. That's amazing. Yeah, it, you definitely have because I I got to know you um, last year and you became very visible. But it, you know, when you talk about mentors, and thank you for sharing because I think you know mentors could be people in high school, it could be a physics teacher, it could be an art mm-hmm. teacher. I mean, so uh, but but I'm really now would love to hear you tell us kind of you know go back prior to 2018 and talk about this interest that you had and this passion that you developed for lung cancer screening and, and really kind of, I'd, I'd love to have you tell us as much as you'd like to about that. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm a family practice uh, provider. I've been in family practice for almost 35 years now. And, you know, with that history, of course, I've seen over the years, many, many patients with lung cancer and many patients, families that have been affected by lung cancer. And, it's typically been a fairly discouraging scenario. You know, unfortunately, over the years and in the history of medicine, certainly while I've been in practice, most of the patients we find either present symptomatically where they're coughing up blood or they've lost weight or they have bone pain. And those patients are typically in stage three or stage four cancer. And the survival rate in stage three and stage four lung cancer until really the last several years has been fairly dismal. And so that is, that's been our experience. And so when I learned about lung cancer screening, I, I didn't know what a low-dose CT lung cancer screen was five years ago. And I got asked to be on a thoracic oncology disease management team because at the time I was overseeing 10 to 12 different offices. I had an administrative role already, and they needed a primary care, kind of a token primary care provider on, on the team and on the committee. And so... <laughs> 
I got kind of voluntold to some degree to be on the committee and I gladly did. And, and I can remember the first time I sat in that meeting hearing all the acronyms and, and the, the jargon that was involved in lung cancer and lung cancer screening. And I had no clue what they were talking about, but I could tell that there was something available now that could make a difference. And we, I, I joined with the uh, first dedicated thoracic surgeon that we had, he was hired in January, 2016. And we started going around practice to practice discussing what lung cancer screening was and the benefits of it. And we started building our program at the time, back in 2014, 2015. And then I joined in 2016, we were doing about 200 scans a year or something like that. And I, and I knew we could do better. And I saw something that for the first time in my career that could make a difference. It had been proven at the time that you could reduce lung cancer mortality by 20% in the National Lung Screening Trial. And if you catch it in stage one, stage two, we knew we could, you know, if you catch an early stage one, you had a greater than 90% chance of curing lung cancer. So the key was to catch it early. So I really took that to heart. And worked with an amazing team that we have at St. Elizabeth, you know, built of oncologists and pulmonologists and radiologists. We had our first nurse navigator hired in 2018, I believe, but we all started working collectively in building our program. And it's, it's a good place to be when you have only way, one way to go is up. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we at the time were probably screening you know, less than 1%, of course, of the eligible patients in our population. And I knew we could do better. I knew if we got the primary care providers on board that we could begin to build our program and accelerate our experience and, and really get some good data together and some good numbers to share. And, and as, as you grow data, especially if you have good homegrown data, it really starts to move and motivate not only the providers, but the executives, the administrators, the managers, the, the community, when you start sharing this data. And it didn't take long for us to demonstrate similar results to what were demonstrated in the National Lung Screening Trial. You know, we could cause a pretty, we, we demonstrated a pretty obvious stage shift just in the first three years or so of our program. And we've, of course, amassed a, a, a fairly significantly greater amount of experience since that time. And the numbers are continuing to replicate that success and that experience. And what, at the time when you said they were, you're doing maybe 200 screens, what do you think the reason was that, that there was such a lack of, was it just awareness education? Like what was the, what was preventing that from happening? Well, you have to start somewhere in 2013, we did seven screens that year. And again, at the time we, we knew that low-dose lung cancer screening existed, but the word really wasn't out there for primary care providers. As a matter of fact, the American Academy of Family Practice finally gave it a B grade just April of this year. So it wasn't really taught in residencies. It wasn't uh, taught to family practitioners. As a matter of fact, there was probably a disproportionate amount of education around why not to do lung cancer screening. And so the word really didn't get out to the primary care membership. And in our system, the program was started by a radiologist and a pulmonologist. And 
they knew about the lung cancer screening program and the national lung screening trial. And they were trying to get the word out there to other providers and, and to try to get some traction in the primary care community. But we really didn't make that leap until we hired our first dedicated thoracic surgeon. And then subsequently when I joined the program and we started kind of a team-based approach to getting the word out there. And then does that, does that require the conversation from primary care physician to, uh, to, to, to patients who have, who are eligible, right? Who are eligible for screening? Oh, sure. Yeah. There's very strict evidence-based guidelines that we have to go by. And, and we started back in 2013, kind of using the guidelines and the criteria from the National Lung Screening Trial, because that's what we had available at the time. The test wasn't really covered very well by insurance until the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services adopted and approved it and, and gave some fairly strict criteria in 2015. And that's what we used until just early this year. And the CMS criteria was you had to be between 55 and 77 years of age. You had to have 30 pack years, which is a pack a, a day for 30 years or half a pack a day for 60 years or some mathematical derivation of that. And you have to have smoked in the last 15 years. So those were the, the major criteria that we used. And when you had a patient that met those criteria, we tried to get the word out to our primary care docs that, you know, these are the criteria, these patients come in, they meet the criteria, go ahead and order the screen, insurance is going to cover it. And we also then had our electronic medical records structured such that best practice alerts would pop up if the patient met that criteria, our health maintenance would track whether the patient qualified for lung cancer screening, just the way it does for colon cancer cancer screen and mammography for breast cancer screen. So we had those prompts and those encouragements, so to speak, built into our medical record that prompted not only the provider, but the medical assistant as well to remind the patient that they qualify for the test. And then CMS also required us to do what's called shared decision-making. We had to talk to the patient about the risks and the benefits of lung cancer screening, that it was an annual test until they hit the age of 77 or until it had been 15 years since they smoked, that if we found something, that was another risk, that it might require further testing. We had to talk about radiation exposure and false positive rates and overdiagnosis. And there are quite a few stipulations that CMS actually built into the discussion that we were supposed to have with the patient. And that to some degree was a bit of a barrier for providers to, to learn that and to spend the time doing that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I, it seems to me that whole shared decision-making process is very cumbersome and very, you know, given, given the, the limited time that unfortunately physicians often have with patients, my son's a nurse practitioner now. And so I hear from him directly, you know, what his day looks like and, and, uh, similar to what you, what what your day looks like as a primary care physician, and that whole that whole process of like uh, it just feels like that would that would be such a barrier, and maybe it's still a barrier. Is it? St I mean, to where people are just no, it's like a, it's, a, it's a barrier, and it's a bit of a burden. You know, when a patient comes in for their blood pressure, for their diabetes, or for a cold or a rash, I mean these pop-ups come up that they're due for their mammogram, they're due for colonoscopy, they're due for their lung cancer screen, and they may not be there for a physical that you really have that time carved out, you know, a little extra time that you're able to spend with them. But 
these are the things that you, you don't want to miss. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it is a bit of a burden and it's, it's a responsibility that you screen these pages. You may not see them for another year or two. And when these alerts pop up, it's incumbent upon us to try to make sure they're caught up in their immunizations and their breast cancer screen, their colon cancer screen, lung cancer screen. And then with lung cancer screening, it's the only screening test we do that were mandated by Medicare to do this shared decision-making discussion. And you right. have to do it on the baseline scan. You don't have to do it on the annual subsequent scans. And, and, and I've timed it. If you do a pretty decent job and you hit the high points, you can do it in three minutes, but you, you really can't do it well and do it adequately in less than three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that you don't have to do that for other, other scans. And so that just, to me, it just feels like, you know, that's, part of the problem. And, and you also mentioned earlier about the, the associations, you know, not even getting on board with you know, recommending screening because of sure. false positives and all the other things. Right. Cause I th- feel yeah. like that was a problem too. It is. And, you know, we, we realize that there is definitely value in shared decision-making and we do to some degree share decision-making when we order a mammogram or a colonoscopy or offer the options, Cologuard, colonoscopy, fit test, you know, we talk about lung cancer screening. I think even if we weren't mandated, we'd probably talk about the risks and the benefits and why you really should have this test. But the, the one good thing about it, though, with with CMS and with the shared decision making, we can bill for the time we spend for doing the shared decision making. It's the only test that there actually is a G0296 code that you can bill and you get reimbursed for doing that work. Yeah. Well, you know, we could talk for, for hours about the, you know, some of the the barriers and some of the, you know, to me, um, just missed opportunities because I just feel like, and from what I've read, the, the, the screening rates are so, are so low, even with people who are eligible um, across the board. And I know some places are doing well. So I'd, li- I'd rather focus on the positive. I'd rather focus on the, on the energy that, that I get from speaking with you, uh, Mike. Um, Talk to us. So I want you to talk to us about the successes that you're having um, at your institution. And I know that you're very proud of the work that you guys have have all been doing collectively. So tell us tell us some more about that and how you are measuring up against sort of the national what's happening, you know, sort of national averages, if you will. Sure. So, you know, we were fortunate early on in our program that we did have the buy in of our executive team and administration. And they, you know, because these programs are, are a little bit difficult to start initially. You really have to get buy-in of multiple resources, your IT department, the different specialists. We early on instituted a nodule review board, which is made up of a pulmonologist, a radiologist, a thoracic surgeon. I'm there. We have our nurse navigator there. And we review all the highly suspicious nodules at this nodule review board. We also review highly suspicious incidental nodules that present. And this is done on volunteer time. Every Monday morning at seven o'clock we meet. But through this process, we really got the buy-in and the confidence of our primary care providers and really the physicians across the board in our organization, as well as management. And we have a very programmatic approach of identifying these lesions, making sure that they're plugged into the proper specialist, that the proper follow-up scans get ordered, and that the nurse navigator guides the patient to this very scary time in their life when any kind of nodule is found, especially if it turns out to be cancer. But having that program in place 
was really critical, I think, in growing our program. And we encourage our primary care providers, or really any physician or provider that orders the test to, to talk with their patient about the results, but to some degree, to take their hands off the wheel and let the patient be guided through our programmatic approach, you know, through our very systematic approach to you know, these nodules and that subsequently be, become cancer oftentimes. And once we started to get some homegrown data, we find one lung cancer for every 63 scans that we do. And when you tell you know, a, a room full of managers or room full of providers that statistic, you can just really see the pause and it's, it's impactful. When we tell them that for, uh, we tell them that we find 56% of the lung cancers in stage one, we're finding 69% of the lung cancers in the early stages, either stage one or stage two. And we've now found over 320 lung cancers since we started our program. And that makes a huge difference. We compare those numbers to what's traditionally found in a healthcare system. We normally, when you're looking at inst incidental and symptomatic nodules or incidental or symptomatic cancers that present, nearly 50% of those are usually in stage four. And we're finding 70% less in stage four. We're finding 137% more in stage one. So that's what we call stage migration. We've caused a dramatic shift in the stage from stage four to stage one, where the chance of cure is, is much higher. And so as we started to present these impressive statistics and, and metrics, and we really convinced our providers that we have a very you know, well-organized and well-orchestrated programmatic approach to guide these patients through the process, we started to get more and more buy-in. And we presently are doing about 500 to 600 scans a month in our program. And just delighted to say that just the, on the very last hour, the very last day of Lung Cancer Awareness Month, we just did our 20,000 scans since we started our program, you know, just uh, seven to eight years ago. And wow. there's not really many programs, if hardly any, that have done 20,000 scans. We're on track to do probably 6,000 scans by the end of this year alone. Wow. And, you know, we don't celebrate that because we're doing so many scans, but because we're finding, you know, 56% in stage one and 69% in the early stages. Yeah, well, that's the whole point, right? I mean, that, that's what we're trying to do. We're, all of us are trying to, to, to get patients diagnosed earlier because they have such a better chance of survival the earlier that we find lung cancer. I'm a lung cancer survivor stage one, as you know. And so, yeah, and I'm, you know, 20 years later and I'm still, I'm living a great life and a life of gratitude, of course, but I, I want to go back to that, that program. And you mentioned that it's all volunteer. You have this, this group of, of committed people who, who have the different perspectives, including yours, but you have the, from radiology and from pulmonology and, and, for, and the different, that is very unique. And I know I heard about that when I talked with Inga Lennis at Mass General. I know they have a similar pulmonary nodule clinic uh, approach, but I think it's, when I first heard about that, I had never heard of it. So I'm like, how come I've never heard of this? And like what you just described at St. Elizabeth, like, I've never, like, I'm glad that the, your, your providers are, uh, are buying into it because that, that's what it requires, right? Because, you know, you, you said yourself, even seven years ago, you weren't thinking about lung cancer screening for patients, right? As a primary care physician, because it was, wasn't, it just wasn't, it just wasn't taught, right? So what, what can we do to get more 
healthcare systems to, 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 to see what you are, are doing and to, and, to, and to do similar things? Well, it's a good place to start to, to build that team and to get individuals that you can identify that have a passion and have an energy for building a program. And you know, the reality is that once you build these programs, they start to feed themselves. And you know, the, the pulmonologists that rotate through there, the radiologists that rotate through there, the thoracic surgeons that rotate, they all generate business through the program. But it has to start you know, as, as a voluntary basis. And you know, nobody wants to get up and be at a meeting at seven o'clock on a Monday morning. But True. You know, it, it's, a, it's a higher calling to some degree. It's, you know, we, it's gratifying, rewarding, of course, to see the program we built and to see the program grow. And they're all busier because of it, too. You know, we've just hired our third dedicated thoracic surgeon. We have a team of probably 11 to 12 pulmonologists. And, and we've built the largest cancer center within a 250 mile radius. We just completed the cancer center October of last year. And, and it's because of a lot of this work that we're doing, the programs we're building and the attention that we're attracting and, and the good work that we're doing. Well, I think it's amazing. I, and I'm really honored to have you tell us about that because I, I'm the first to admit many times, cause I was treated at Mass General Hospital in Boston that yeah. I, can sometimes become Boston centric because it's just, that's what we do here. You know, we, oh, sure. uh, but we know when, whenever I, he, but when I hear of great work that's being done around the country, uh, I like to showcase that because it's important because so many people are being, not everybody's going to mass general to get treated. A lot of people are getting, most people are getting treated in a community setting. Right. So um, sure. I think, I think the work that you're doing is really, is really impressive, Mike. So, and I wanted to make sure that you had a chance also to tell us about the Kentucky health collaborative. I know that's something that, that, um, that, that you're involved with. So would you like to yeah. tell us about that? Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we're, we're actually involved in three different state-based collaboratives. We started with the Kentucky Leeds study, and we're still a part of that. And that was based out of UK and the Markey Health Center, trying to improve the quality of lung cancer screening across our state. And we're also working with the Kentucky Cancer Consortium, but probably the most closely uh, most the, the work I, I or the, the company that I most closely work with is a Kentucky Health Collaborative, and that's 10 hospital systems across the state of Kentucky. It includes about 60 to 70 separate hospitals and imaging centers. And we together collectively provide about 60% of healthcare in the state of Kentucky. And Kentucky obviously has a tremendous cancer problem. You know, we haven't talked a lot about that, but Kentucky has the number one spot in the incidence of lung cancer in the country. We have the number one spot in lung cancer mortality in the country. We're fifth from the bottom in five-year lung cancer survival. So some really dismal statistics. And we are very proud that we're now number two in the, in the country for lung cancer screening. And part of that's happened through our state-based initiatives. And the Kentucky Health Collaborative chose lung cancer awareness and lung cancer screening as their first quality initiative and been working with them for probably a couple of years now. And we're at a point now where these 10 hospital systems have just about all signed on now to sign their, to, uh, to share their data. Uh, it's de-identified data that we obtained through the American College of Radiology and the Kentucky Cancer Registry. And it's really unprecedented to get 10 hospital systems across the state 
to share data and to work collaboratively together on, on something so important. And once you have that data and you can benchmark where you're at and you know where you're at, and you know what your experience is, then you can start to build quality improvement initiatives around that. And, and we're on, we're in the brink of starting to do that to amass this data. It's very exciting. It's been a lot of work, a lot, a lot of lawyers and accountants involved. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, but again, important work. And I know that, you know, given, and thanks for sharing those statistics about, uh, you know, about Kentucky. Uh, but I, but I think it's amazing that you, and you should be proud that, that you're number two in lung cancer screening. Uh, obviously we all have a lot of work to do, right. Um, but you're making progress and it's, it's It's really great to, to see the, the passion that you have for this, you know, at the local level, uh, that you're doing, you're, you are having an impact. So, so I, I can tell you as a lung cancer survivor, I, we, well, but we appreciate everything that you do, which leads me to, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the white ribbon project and I thought you um, might, <laughs> you think I might. Yeah, you think but one of the things I'd like to ask people, um, who are involved with lung cancer care and research on my show is I, w- I would love to have you tell us what you thought about when you first heard about the White Ribbon Project and then tell us what do you think the impact has been. And then we'll talk about your sort of personal uh, participation. Well, a friend of mine, Michelle Ottersbeck, who's a nurse, pra- or a nurse navigator, she had been involved to some degree with the White Ribbon Project and she really pushed me to reach out to Heidi Nathmananda and her husband, Pierre, who's a primary care provider as well. And at the time, I didn't know Chris Draft either. He had worked pretty closely with him for a while. And this was probably in February of this year. And what attracted me to them, I, of course, got on the website and learned a little bit about him, was that it was a grassroots movement. It was a, a, a big tent. It didn't matter if you smoked or didn't smoke, or if you had a certain biomarker or not. And it was really just around trying to raise lung cancer awareness for, through a grassroots effort and um, a homegrown initiative. And I, I, I like the fact that they made, you know, white ribbon out of wood and, you know, they hung the first one on her door. Heidi, of course, was frustrated that lung cancer wasn't getting the awareness and attention that she felt it deserved. Like a lot of the other cancers that, that do, uh, the funding is not near as, as good as it should be compared to the other cancers. And as I got to know them, I, I had a kind of a personal identification with them because I'm very outdoors oriented. I like to hike and bike and, and kayak. And I found they like to do the same things and they're in the same stage of life. They were empty nesters. I've got two girls now they are 27 and 29 and first two grandkids already. And they're not quite to that stage yet, but, but, uh, very similar. He was a primary care provider. I was, and, and, uh, just to see what Heidi had gone through and, you know, the, the, the shock of her cancer diagnosis stage 3A and somebody that was a healthcare advocate and um, actually instructor really impressed me and, and the work that they had done and the, their vision of raising lung cancer awareness. And so through that you know, relationship I built with them and the White Ribbon Project, my whole perspective on lung cancer, lung cancer screening, lung cancer awareness has really started to shift. You know, my world is focused so much before this on you know, your smoking history and your age. And that, that's the criteria that we have to go by. That's the only thing that insurance will cover right now. But 
when I started learning more and more of people like you, Dave and Heidi, that, you know, got lung cancer that didn't smoke, uh, lots of young females, it's just, it's really incredible how that it's a growing population. There's something else going on out there and there's something else that we need to learn about and we need to address and we need to expand screening criteria and start bringing risk determinants into the equation and, and, and focusing more on biomarkers and family history and a lot of the things that the technology is growing around and the technology's changing rapidly and exponentially. And, and the White Ribbon Project has really advocated that, you know, broadening the, the scope of lung cancer awareness, lung cancer screening, and hopefully to bring some of those things to the table. And it's an incredibly passionate group of people. It's just been really fun to be a part of. I enjoy the community meetings. Uh, they came to our hospital and we did the first white ribbon build at our hospital, the first cancer center that did that. And uh, I organized that along with some very energetic, compassionate people from my cancer center. And of course, with close work with Heidi and Pierre and Chris Draft. And it was successful. It was moving. It was very rewarding. And and once you start that, the ball starts rolling and you get, you get increasing traction. And, and um, they've, they've been at so many cancer centers and hospitals now across the country, I couldn't even begin to count. And I think the white ribbons that they've built across the country and, and the world really now, I think they're up to six to seven, maybe 8,000 now. And it's, it's, it's really gratifying to see what they've done in the cancer survivors and the cancer thrivers and the families and the providers and the hospital systems that they've touched and, and the momentum that they've attracted. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I'm sure you can share the, the emotional feeling that, that you and others had at St. Elizabeth when you had your build, that it was not just the fact that, and I know you made, I think 128 ribbons, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was really more about the camaraderie and the fellowship and the community, right? And the emotional connection that, that you had that knowing that this, these ribbons would go to somebody to tell them that you're getting this with love and you're not alone. Right. So I, Correct. did you feel that? I'm sure you, yeah. Wood, they're, they're hand painted, they're signed and, and there's, there's an organic kind of nature to the, the white ribbon project and their outreach. It really does come from the heart. Yeah, I had I built I had a build in my house in July, and I um, had a number of people here. My neighbors were here. Some folks from Mass General came. Uh, Justin Gaynor was here, and Galenis came, and uh, my boss flew in from Dallas. I mean, it was unbelievable. And there was a bunch of local uh, survivors as well. But but it was just that day was just there's something special about it, man. I I agree with you, and it's not it's. It's not about how many ribbons we can produce or can we get them made on Amazon or can we whatever. It's not about that at all. It's just a, the whole process of making. I just, Chris Draft came out to my, he came a few weeks ago. You may have seen that we we went to Fenway Park and, and Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Ed Wayman on Channel 5 uh, interviewed us and it was really cool. And, um, but we made eight, but the, the night before we made 80 ribbons and, uh, uh, Lisa and Alan Haynes, thank you. Um, shout out to them uh, for coming over to help me. But uh, I mean, I was up late. I was up early in the morning putting stickers on, and um, it's it's for me. It's love, man. It's it's just it's very it's very special. So, 
and, and I think we have to also have you tell us um, about your trip that you took. You're, you love to hike. You love the outdoors. Uh, but for, I mean, many people who are listening right now probably may not know the story. So I'm here you go, man. You got to tell us about your, your hiking adventure that was not here in the United States. It was somewhere else. So tell yes, us about that. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I, I usually like to try to, I, I hike the Appalachian trail twice a year and I usually try to do an international hike as well. And so this year I set to hike to the base camp of Mount Everest and it was shortly after actually I met Heidi and Pierre in the white ribbon project. And I got to think, well, gosh, I, I could take one of those white ribbons with me to Mount Everest base camp. That'd be kind of cool. And so, and as it turned out, it fit perfectly in my backpack. They're one foot by two foot. And, and I, it just fit like a glove inside my backpack. And, and, um, it didn't weigh a lot. I think it was like 1.1 pounds. <laughs> of course, you count every ounce when you're you're hiking like that. And I was fortunate that my uh, my Sherpa actually carried most of the weight for me. I, I was fairly spoiled. I'm not sure I could have made it otherwise. But it was 9,000 feet, climbing elevation over nine days. It was about 32 miles, and just beautiful scenery, great people. And I also advocated for the American Lung Association. I had a banner for them and then also for the GoTo Foundation. So it was something that kept me going. You know, I, I felt like I had a higher calling, you know, a mission to, to make it. And um, in those moments where I questioned my sanity and, and wasn't sure I had the stamina to push on, it, it really motivated me and helped push me to the next level. Those pictures were amazing. So did you say you did, did you climb, did you do a, a your hike 9,000 elevation? Yeah, it was 9,000 feet total climbing elevation, but it was over nine days. And, and it wasn't any technical climbing. It was just, you know, it was hike. And it was a few times where yeah, yeah, yeah. rocks and things, but I wasn't using pickaxes and crampons. And <laughs> no, but I'll tell you, my, one of my son, my son, Mike is a, is a big avid hiker now. And he, He's doing the the presidential range in New Hampshire. That's there's like oh, yeah, 40, sure. I think there's 48. Uh, I think it's 48. It's Mount Wa- you know, you know Mount 4, Washington Mount footers. Yeah. 4, footers. It's you yeah, know the. Yeah. But he did Mount. You know when he did um, him and Pat, my son Pat did Mount Madison, Madison or Adams. I think it was Adams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they <clears throat> in one day they do a hike elevation of like 5,500 feet from that's the base brutal. to. That's a, that's a tough climb. <laughs> holy moly! Yeah. So, yeah. So I've got great, believe me, I've got great admiration for, for, cause I, I just, my wife and I went hiking and it's like, I, I mean, I love to walk and I love to hike, but that multiple thousand feet elevation sure. and, climb. And then you put the altitude on top of it. It was, yeah. uh, it was pretty humbling. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I finished out at about 18,400 feet, something like that. Darn, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, the pictures were amazing. And the fact that you had the commitment to bring a white ribbon with you, um, we're, we're, we're certainly, um, grateful, uh, for your commitment. Seriously, man, you, you, uh, I am just so impressed with, with everything, uh, everything that you're doing. I know you're an avid outdoors and hiker and stuff. I always like to ask my guests, you know, outside of work, you know, what, what is something that you're passionate about that maybe people don't know about you, uh, but outside of hiking, is there anything else that you, that you can share with us? Yeah, I, it's been kind of said I'm a bit of a renaissance man. I, I like to cook and and I also have a passion for gardening. You know, our, our yard is getting slowly taken over by multiple gardens and you know, we have herb gardens and rock gardens and vegetable gardens and butterfly gardens and 
and I really enjoy it. You know, we've, uh, we've got a, a pool, we have gardens around our pool that we enjoy taking care of. I don't golf. So when I'm off in my downtime, I come home and throw on my grubbies and go out and work in the yard. And, and, uh, I, I do like to kayak and, and hike and be outdoors as well. And uh, of course, enjoy spending time with my family. We were fairly avid travelers. We've been to my wife and I've been to all 50 States, my children and and my wife and I have been to 49 states. We still have Hawaii left, but it's been no small task to accomplish that. And having relatives in the Northeast has helped. You know, we've it was easy to knock off a lot of the Northeast states exactly. relative up there. But that's true. That's true. Well, a lot, a lot of states in a small area. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, I'm from Minnesota, and I always say to people, like, just for perspective, for me to go from Minneapolis to where my my uh, some of my relatives live in War Road, which is up on the Canadian border. Oh gosh, yeah. That to go from Minneapolis to War Road is about the same as me going from Boston to Philadelphia, and gotcha. so perspective-wise, that's like six states that I go through in the period mm-hmm. of going through exactly. one state. You know, so yeah. Well, Mike, you, you you know you could maybe a Renaissance man is the word, but you're clearly an artist, and you knew you were an artist when you were a little kid. So, um, you know, gardening. And and uh, kayaking and all the things that you're doing, you, you're a very artistic uh, person. So um, I'm sure it I'm sure it shows in your practice and the way that you communicate and interact with your patients. It's certainly, it's been a pleasure for me to get to know you and your commitment to the White Ribbon Project. So I can't thank you enough, Mike. Uh, uh, really appreciate you uh, being on the show, and thank you for everything that you do uh, for the lung cancer community. Thank you so much. Sure. Absolutely. My pleasure, Dave. And it's been nice working with you and getting to know you better as well. It's really been a, a great collaboration with the White Ribbon Project. And you do an incredible amount of work on social media and see you all the time on Twitter and Facebook. And and uh, you're, you're probably almost up there with Chris Draft in terms of passion and energy. <laughs> well, I, he's, a I, hard to, he's a little hard to beat, but <laughs> there's no way I can keep up with him, man. But, but I, but I went to the, my wife's from Buffalo. And so we were at the Buffalo bills game two weeks ago or 10 days ago, and it was raining. It was awful and it was cold. And, but there's Chris draft, you know, and he's there yeah. too. And he's got a bunch of ribbons with him and we're going all over the bills mafia and we're, oh we're up on the high stands up there. And he's like, here, here, take these ribbons. So he's an inspiration for sure, right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Anyway, thanks again, Mike. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again, Dave. Bye bye.